have to start this morning by saying my wife does not listen to me. Why are you all laughing? I know she doesn't listen to me because she doesn't answer me. I hear an amen. Anybody? Now, it wouldn't be fair if I stopped there. You see, I have this habit of trying to talk to my wife when she can't hear me. In another room, I'll start talking, I just assume she can hear me, and no response. Now, at other times, I'll start to talk, and she can hear the volume or the words, but she can't hear me or understand me because she's in another room and she'll kind of shout from the other room. So it's not really her fault that I have this tendency to try to talk to her when she either can't hear me or isn't close enough to have a conversation. We know people listen oftentimes when they answer. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 17 today. And the psalm can actually be categorized as a psalm of prayer or petition. A psalm of prayer or petition is one where the psalmist cries out to the Lord asking for something and it's with the expectation that the Lord is going to answer him. You might also put this psalm into the category of vindication. You could call it a psalm of vindication. You know what vindication is? It's when somebody does right by you. You get vindicated. Maybe there's an accusation against you for wrongdoing and you're vindicated means that it's shown that you weren't truly wrong. And so this psalm would fit into that um, psalm of petition or prayer, but also a psalm of vindication, because it's one where David is crying out to the Lord for vindication. We're going to learn the basis of his confidence that the Lord is going to answer him in this psalm as we walk through it today. So the main theme here is the Lord's justice and deliverance, or vindication. Now, as for the structure and the poetry of the psalm, this one's rather interesting, and we'll we'll get into some of the details here, but the structure of it, verses 1 and 2, are David's first plea. He's going to have three pleas here. So his first plea is in verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 5 are his supporting evidence for his plea. In other words, he makes a plea to God, and then he provides a supporting evidence why that plea is valid. Then he makes a second plea in verses 6 through 9, which is followed in verses 10 through 12, by some more supporting evidence. Then lastly, in verses 13 and the first half of 14, he makes his third plea. But now, instead of providing evidence to support his plea, he refers to the favorable verdict of the Lord. In other words, the Lord's answer. And so if you were to think of this visually, you basically have three pleas, And after each plea is some supporting material, or in the last case, this um, reflection on God's vindication or God's answer to that. Now, as for the poetic elements, one of them in this one is this overarching theme of a courtroom. As you look at this, it's going to sort of look like a courtroom. He goes in, God the righteous judge is on the throne, and he's making his plea before the the judge, and providing the evidence to support his plea. And so one of the poetic elements of this psalm is this this sort of backdrop of a courtroom that David has walked into. Drama, you might say. Now there's also within that some subtle imagery that we're going to see too. The first is the Lord as judge. You see that in the first three verses where the, the um, David appeals to the Lord as his judge. And it's very subtle the way that it's played out. 
The second bit of imagery here is found in that next section, verses 6-9, where David sort of portrays the Lord or calls upon the Lord as his Savior who protects him. And the third bit of subtle imagery here is the Lord as a warrior who actually delivers that. And so you have this background of the courtroom, and within that courtroom you have the Lord portrayed as both judge, savior, and warrior. And again, it's somewhat subtle. It's not quite as subtle in the middle section because David refers to the Lord as the savior, but most of it's fairly subtle. And so you have to use your imagination a little bit as we go through this. There's also a, quite a few word pictures here. If we look at verses 8, or down at verse 8 here of Psalm chapter 17, David says, Keep me as the apple of the eye. That's the pupil of the eye. You've heard that before. I'm the apple of his eye. Um, he refers to the shadow of the Lord's wings. There's that um, the, the great word picture of seeking protection and being covered under the wings of the Lord. Verse 12, jump down there with me. It says, He meaning his enemies, are like a lion that is eager to tear as a young lion lurking in hiding places. What a great picture to describe his enemies or those that are bringing accusation against him, this lion that's just lurking and hiding and waiting to pounce upon him as he walks by. Verse 14, he actually uses some colorful language here. He refers to these individuals, these enemies, and their reward as being a portion of, from the Lord, but look at the middle of that. He says, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. He portrays his enemies as getting their reward on this earth, as God filling their bloated bellies with their treasures. And so you get this amazing word picture of his enemies with this big fat belly that's just stuffed with, you know, all their stuff. They can't take it with them. They're bloated. and So he's got these great word pictures that he used here. Now, we've talked about this before where sometimes the author will use something called anthropomorphism, which is where you take and attribute to God human characteristics. This psalm is filled with that type of stuff. Look at verse 1, and uh, we'll just touch on it briefly here. He says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. He talks about the Lord having ears there. Verse 6, he says the same thing. I've called upon you and you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear what I have to say. Verse 2, he gives the Lord eyes. He says, verse 2, let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with iniquity. He mentions eyes later on again as well. I'm in verse 4. The Lord actually has lips. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips. That's a reference to his word. Gives the Lord hands. Look at verse 7. Wondrous, uh, wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand. He goes down into verse 14 and he refers to the Lord's hand again. Gives the Lord a face in verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. He even puts a sword into the hand of the hand of the Lord in verse 13, something that you would image as a warrior here. And so he uses all this anthropomorphism here to give human characteristics. It makes sense when you think about the Lord looking at you or the Lord speaking with his mouth. I mean, think about it, folks. When you picture God, what do you typically picture? Don't you kind of see him with human features in some respects? Big beard, you know? You see the far side cartoon where the Lord is up on the big throne with the beard and all of that. But we have a tendency to picture him that way because it's relational. That's exactly what the psalmist does here. The Lord really doesn't have lips or hands or feet. There's no form to him, except in Christ. But by doing that, he makes it personal. It makes it relatable to us. 
And it's actually the Lord speaking because it's divine inspiration. So the Lord himself is giving himself hands and feet and eyes for our benefit. And it makes for some great um, pictures for us. The last one we've already touched on, and he uses something called zoomorphism, which is where God has given the characteristics of, the characteristics of an animal. He refers here to the wings of the Lord, which is a, a great picture. It's used throughout the Old Testament as the Lord can spread his wings and provide shade and coverage and take his people in underneath those wings. And so those are some of the things we'll look forward to in this psalm today. Now, there's other things, the, the, synonyms, or the synonyms that are used and the parallelism that's used in that that you'll, you'll see as we go through it as well. But let's go ahead and get into the, the teaching of this. That first section is where, again, we saw David's first plea. It's verses 1 through 5. I want you to pay attention to some of the imagery here because, again, he, he portrays the Lord in this particular case as a righteous judge. We find his plea in the first two verses. He says this, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. What we find here is that David has come to the Lord because he's being accused, apparently, of some things. We, we don't know the exact reason. We don't know the exact situation that this psalm was written for. All we know is that David is being accused somehow, likely his enemies. Now, you have to remember that David's enemies actually were not as much the Philistines and, and the rest as much as it was Israel. Remember, David was, at least for, the, uh, for a large portion of his early years, was battling against Saul and his army and his enemies. Um, so it wasn't always the Philistines or others. And many of those were making false accusations against David. In fact, I've been working through Second Samuel here. This is going to be our next series. And um, it's interesting because it starts with that tension between Israel. It starts with the death of Saul, but you have tension in Israel. And David is first made king over Judah before he ever becomes king over Israel. But there's at least seven or eight years. And there's battles that take place. And it's likely that this was probably written at a time like that where many of those men, people from within Israel, are accusing David. We don't know for sure, but that's as likely as probably anything else. And so he goes to the Lord here, and he's going to plea for vindication. So the first thing we see with that is that David actually considers himself an innocent man, and he's pleading to the Lord to hear his case. Notice he refers to his case as a just cause. That's a, a way to refer to it being a righteous cause. I've got a reason to be here. This is, there's, there's justice that I, that I need here. I have every right to come here before you. This is a just thing that I'm asking of you. David brings his case before the Lord, and he says, I'm doing it in honesty. It's not from deceitful lips. Now, I always find it interesting that in almost every instance, as somebody goes before the judge for the first time, what's the plea that's usually entered? Not guilty. Not, it's always not guilty. The man can be caught, photographed, holding the axe. <laughs> I'm innocent. That's always the plea. That's always the way that it starts. Now, there's probably legal reasons for that, I would assume. But nonetheless, there's a bit of deception there, is there not? And David says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay it all out in front of you without deceitful lips, with honesty. My cause is just. I'm not lying. The second thing we see here is that David is seeking justice from the Lord. What he really wants is vindication. Justice. He says, let my judgment come forth from your presence. 
In other words, he's asking the Lord to be just with him. Third thing we might see in this is that David is depending, he's rest his whole entire case on the Lord's equity. What I mean by that is um, his uprightness or his straightforwardness. The word that's used in the Hebrew there for equity literally means to be upright or to be straight. And so he's looking at the Lord and he's saying, you're a righteous judge, you make right decisions. There's no gall in you, everything you do is right. Every judgment you make is just. And so David is appealing to the Lord based on the equity of the Lord, his goodness and his ability to make a right judgment for him. You know, it's interesting because when when folks are arrested and have to go before a judge, their hope is always that they'll have not just a compassionate judge, but a righteous judge. We talk about the rule of law. You hear it in politics all the time. You know, the rule of law, you want a judge who's going to make the right decision based on the law. But oftentimes we find that judges are imperfect people, just like we are, and sometimes judge based upon personal opinion. That's why we have appeals courts. You know, because if one judge doesn't do it, maybe the next one up the line will, and ultimately we have a Supreme Court that is supposed to be the ultimate arbiter of what's right. And the hope is that they will then ultimately right any wrongs made by judges below them that didn't, or that weren't equitable in their judgment, didn't do the right thing because of whatever agenda. And so David's appeal here to the Lord is, I'm seeking justice from you. This is a just cause, but I'm going to have to throw myself at your mercy as an equitable judge. And so he basically lays himself at his feet and basically says, it's up to you, Lord. You decide whether or not I should be vindicated. So, David lays his case out before him, or his plea. Now he's going to provide the evidence for that, and that's verses 3 through 5. The first bit of evidence is that the Lord himself has found no cause of offense in David. It's as if, he, as if we would go to the judge and say, Judge, you, you know me. You know what I'm like. There's a personal relationship there. Now that, oftentimes in our society, the judge would have to recuse himself. Right? You have to do that with the Lord because he's perfect. But David says, you have tried my heart. You have examined me is another way to say that. He says, you have visited me by night. Which is a way of referring to being investigated. That the Lord has not just seen him, but he's done a thorough investigation of David and who he is. He says, you have tested me. And you find nothing. The word for test here is the word for refining gold or silver. It implies that the Lord is actively working and testing to see if he passes the test. A couple of things to note here about the tenses that are used. You can't see them so well in the English here, but the first three words, tried, visited, tested, are in a tense in Hebrew that implies an action that began in the past but continues through today. In other words, another way to translate that a little bit longer would be, Lord, you have continually, and you do continually try my heart. You have visited and you continue to visit me by night. You have tested me and you continue to test me. But then he changes it at the very last word there when he says, you find nothing. He changes that to an imperfect tense, which basically is a way of saying, and you won't find anything. So what David says is, you've started testing me, you continue to test me, and you can, as you continue to test me through the future, you will never find anything that shows that I'm guilty of these things. David lays it all out there. This is a thorough, thorough examination by the Lord. And David says, you've tried me and tested me, you know me, but you won't find anything. 
There's a certain amount of competence there. What that basically means is that at this particular point, David was not aware of any, I'll say, consistent, willful, deliberate sin. David, we find elsewhere, knew that he sinned. He was a sinner like the rest of us. But there's a difference between knowingly, willingly, deliberately sinning and deceiving the Lord. And David is basically saying, I, I see none of that in myself. And you, Lord, know that. You see that in me. So that second bit of evidence there also shows that David committed himself to walking by the Lord's precepts. He says, you can see in me, Lord, that these things aren't true. But look at verses 3 through 5. The second bit of evidence that David throws out here is that he's committed to walking according to the Lord's commands. Look at verse 3, the second half of it. We'll go down into verse 5. He says, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips I have kept from the paths of the violent. That's another, um, by the word of your lips is another uh, poetic element to the Hebrew. There's actual technical term for it. But it basically means by your word. But he adds some flavor to it for us. By the word of your lips I've kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Look at the word pictures that he uses there. This idea of his feet not slipping. He's stayed on the path, walking within the boundaries that God has laid out through the words that have come from his own lips. David basically says, Lord, my evidence, when I come to you as a judge and I ask for your justice, for your vindication, and I say that my cause is just, My evidence for that is, you know me, you've tested me, you've tried me, you see me and know who I am. But I've also committed myself to walk according to your commandments. And he lays all that at the Lord's feet. And so his first plea here for vindication is that he's asking the Lord for justice. He's asking him to be the righteous judge that he knows the Lord to be. And he bases all of his evidence on the fact of, Lord, you know me. You know that I walk according to your precepts. His second plea then is found in the next few verses. And in this plea, David actually asks the Lord to give him protection from his enemies. In this particular instance, now the imagery moves from that judge to that of a savior. In fact, look at um, verses 6 through 9. He says, I have called upon you, and you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. So he begins with the confidence that the Lord actually is going to answer him. I've called upon you, and you will answer me. There's his confidence. Now what's interesting is he attributes his confidence that the Lord is going to answer him or vindicate him, not in his plea that he just made, but rather on God's faithfulness. Look at what he says in verse 7. Wondrously, show your loving kindness. That's that covenant loyalty we've talked about. Show me your kindness, O Savior, to those who take refuge at your right hand and for those who rise up against them. And so he's actually resting on on the faithfulness of the Lord. He knows the Lord will answer him, not so much because of the weight of his argument, but because the Lord is faithful to him. We know he's pleading for protection here, verses 8 through 9. Keep me as the apple of the eye. You can also say apple of your eye there. That's the pupil. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. He uses quite a few metaphors there. Um, 
paints a great picture for us. I always wondered where that concept of the apple of the eye came from, and there's a lot of debate about it, but I wonder, since it really refers to the pupil, um, they say that you can sometimes see the reflection in the pupil, you know, and so it's almost as if you're standing before the Lord and right there in the middle of that eye, you can see your own reflection. It's right at the heart of what God sees and it places you in His care. David, when he does this, actually, I think, when he, when he uses these last few words here, um, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me. I think he's probably referring back to something he read in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 32. I want you to turn there if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'll start at verse 8. It says, When the Most High God gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. In other words, He's pulled or set Israel aside as His people is what He's saying there. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. He found Him in the desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled Him. He cared for Him. He guarded Him as what? The pupil, the apple of His eye. Like an eagle that stirs up his nest. See, that's where the wings come from. He hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. I would imagine David being as familiar with the Old Testament as he was, at least portions of it that were written at that time, had that picture in his mind, being the apple of God's eye and the picture of the eagle with his wings, because that's reflected in this psalm. And so David, as he thinks about that, his plea actually is born out of that idea. That the Lord is his savior, his savior and will protect him because he knows that he's part of God's people. He's going to go now and provide his evidence. He's made a second plea. He's now going to provide his evidence here. Verses 10 through 12. While in the first bit of evidence he focused on his own innocence and the Lord knowing him, here he actually focuses on his enemy's guilt. Again, it's part of the poetic play here. He focuses on his own evidence or his own innocence in the first plea. Now he's going to focus on his enemy's guilt. Look at verses 8 through 9. It says that they've been out to despoil him. That means to devastate, to destroy, to ruin, despoil. In other words, take the spoils, take everything you have. I was studying through for, uh, Second Samuel chapter 1 um, last night and I was reminded as David starts off by saying David had just returned to Ziklag from defeating the Amalekites. Well, if he just started there, you wouldn't understand what David had returned to. But if you go back to 1 Samuel, you'll realize that David came back to ruins. Because the Amalekites had come, and while David was out fighting with his men, the Amalekites came and attacked Ziklag, burned it, it says, with fire, totally destroyed the city, took the wives, the children, and all the spoil, and disappeared. So David and his men go back, they find Ziklag like that, so they chase down the Amalekites, they slaughter the Amalekites, and they grab their spoils and their wives and their children, and they come back. And so David comes back, basically, to complete ruins. He's only there for two days. Doesn't even have time to start rebuilding the city before he learns of Jonathan and Saul's death. He had been despoiled, just like he says here. He says, so these men are trying to despoil him. He says in verse 10, they have closed their unfeeling heart, which means they are completely incapable of any form of compassion. He says, they, with their mouths they have spoken proudly, which means they're boastful and they're arrogant. He says, they've now surrounded me 
or surrounded us in our steps, and they set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He's like a lion that is eager to tear, and as a young lion lurking in high places, which means they've basically set their hearts on destroying God's people like a lion. They're eager to attack and devour their prey. Do you think there's any parallel to that, to what we see going on today with the growing hatred of the church and Christian ideas and values? You know, it's not enough that we just all be tolerant, is it? We now have to embrace and celebrate. It's not enough that you're gracious and kind to me even though you hold different opinions. I'm more interested in what you think. And you darn well better think like us because you're a bigot or you're a hate monger. Just the fact that you think it is bad enough. They're not out to get acceptance with God's people. It's They want them destroyed. And so David, as he's providing his evidence for his plea, he basically calls on the Lord as his Savior to protect him from these people. And instead of saying, I deserve to be protected, he says, just look at these people. Lord, you see how wicked they are. You see how they hate your people. You can see how they're out there to devour me. In our particular instance here, if we were to put this into maybe modern day terms, what we might do is to say, Lord, look at how they're treating us. We haven't done anything to deserve this. We simply hold your name on our tongue. But look at what they're doing. Look at how wicked they are. Look at how they're attacking, attacking us. And that's exactly what David's evidence here is. Father, just look at them. So his second plea is basically for protection from his Savior. And it's based on God's faithfulness to him and ultimately the judgment of the wicked. As we again, as we think about ourselves here, I had a conversation with an individual yesterday and we were talking about some things and um, just talking about life and some other things. And we talked about... um, when we're wronged and how to respond to that and so as I was talking to him he's an unsaved individual doesn't know the Lord I said well you know it's interesting because when I'm wronged and we talked about a specific instance where I felt I was wronged I said um, my gut is to just to reach out and smash to reach out and get vengeance to reach out and get what's mine or to say well then forget it I'm just gonna you know whatever but I told him I said you know I don't have that option because I don't serve anybody other than Christ. And so my behavior has to be measured by Christ and my relationship because ultimately I will stand before Him and I want to be able to stand before Him and be able, like David, to say, Lord, you know me, but look at my enemies. And so I basically said, those that wrong us will ultimately be judged by the Lord. The Lord is faithful to us. And so we can allow him to deal with our enemies and we can allow him to deal with those who are against us. And that's exactly what David's second plea is. He says, Lord, protect me from them. I'm going to rely on your faithfulness. But look at them. And so his evidence is the wickedness of those around him. He's going to go down on to his third plea. And that's found in verses 13 through 15. I want you to notice the subtle imagery here of the Lord as a warrior rising up and delivering David through the use of the sword in his bare hands. Verse 13, it says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. 
He says, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion in this life or is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. What a description. Notice the imperatives there. Arise, confront, bring low, deliver. Those are all military terms. So God's calling on the Lord to be his warrior, asking God to act on his behalf. So while he was asking for protection above, now he's basically saying, Lord, I want you to act. You are a great warrior. I want you to act against my enemies, those that are bringing these false accusations against me. So justice for David in this instance here does not just involve his rescue or protection. It involves the judgment of his enemies. And that's an interesting thing, folks, because that's exactly what we see in the Lord. That's exactly what we, I'll say, are promised. That because God is a righteous judge, he won't just deliver and rescue us. Ultimately, God's enemies will be judged. That's where justice ends. And so that's exactly what David's calling for here. There's another element of God's justice reflected in how David actually um, ends the psalm here. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children, and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. We've talked about this before. Um, the Hebrew gets really kind of difficult, especially poetry. It's kind of strange because I've made that comment here a number of times and I was listening to a, uh, a discussion. Um, I don't even know how I stumbled across it this last week. And um, they were talking about translation of Hebrew and stuff and they brought this concept up. They said, boy, it's really difficult sometimes, especially with Hebrew poetry. And I kind of thought, I should... Save this, you know, put it aside. And they were talking about the difficulty sometimes with Hebrew poetry. And so you'll notice some of your English translations translated that differently than what I just read. But I think I can probably um, give us some satisfaction on this. The, the, the main point of these last two verses here is that the most satisfaction the wicked of the world are going to receive is what they get in this life. That's why he talks about their bellies being filled with, with their own treasure. Or... Um, they're satisfied with children, or they leave their abundance to their babes. Basically, David is saying, Lord, the best they're going to get is in this life. That's their reward. However, he says, the righteous, like David himself, are going to be satisfied with something far more. And what is that? He tells us in verse 15, they're going to behold the face of righteousness, or the face in righteousness. They're going to be satisfied with seeing the Lord. So it sets up this tension. David is being accused of things. He goes before the Lord. He wants to ultimately see the Lord. He wants to be vindicated by the Lord. And as he reflects on this, he's like, you know, the best they're ever going to receive is what fills their bellies today. But what I have to look forward to is seeing your face, your presence. That's our reward. It's interesting, Peter in First and Second Peter does that very same thing as he's dealing with the saints who are under persecution and struggling under the crushing hand of the Romans. And he basically focuses them on one thing, the appearance of Christ, seeing the Lord and knowing that their faith has been proven when they see the Lord appear again, seeing his presence. And that's exactly what David focuses on here. It's amazing the alignment with the gospel. So what do we do with all this? What we have in this psalm is somebody who's been accused of something. We don't know what. 
It's probably general. And he's crying out to the Lord for vindication. What he's been accused of is not right. So he goes to the Lord, and his pleas basically are, You know me, Lord. You know me. You know my enemies, too. And he asks them to vindicate him. Because he knows that his vindication ultimately will come from the Lord, not from his own hand. It's a good life lesson in that for us. The first thing that actually comes to mind for me with this um, is something James said. James chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. James chapter 5. And it gets at the heart of David's confidence. James chapter 5, verses 16. Is that what it is? Five, yeah, 516. He's encouraging the his readers here to confess their sins. He says in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. But you catch the little phrase there? The prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. There's an awful lot of people that pray. There's an awful lot of people that call out to God for help. Both among the saved and the unsaved. Is that not true? The individual I spoke with yesterday mentioned he has been praying a lot. The Bible tells us that the prayer of a righteous man, and that's simply another way to say those that are in the right relationship with the Lord, that it's the prayers of a righteous man that God answers. Now, we have to preface that a little bit. I continually prayed to the Lord when I was unsaved, asking Him to provide me some answers, and He did. I was seeking Him. So it doesn't mean that God doesn't hear the prayers of the unsaved, because when an unsaved man prays to the Lord to save him, what does he do? Saves him. It's pretty clear. But the point of James here is that as believers, as those who proclaim the name of Christ, it's imperative (laughs) that we maintain the right relationship with the Lord if we expect Him to answer our prayers. And so, the reason David is able to go to the Lord and to say, I know you're going to vindicate me, I know you're going to hear me on this, is because he throws it out and says, Lord, you know me, and I've examined myself, and you've examined me, and you see that. And so, one thing that this ought to drive us to do is to think about that. You know, I, I often wonder as I pray, you know, Lord, is there anything hindering these things anything sort of sitting between you and me that's making my seals bo- or my prayers bounce off the ceiling can I really be confident that you're hearing me right now and I, I, I find myself having to look at myself and make sure that there's nothing standing between me and the Lord uh, so I think that's one of the places we have to ultimately start I look around the world today and, and I, I see much of the struggles that the church in the United States is starting to face too as we're being attacked on a more frequent basis, as we're being accused of certain things. Uh, just recently, the Salvation Army, I don't know if you saw it, um, 
Is it a British entertainer that's supposed to be performing at one of the football games coming up here? And the Salvation Army does a, they sponsor like the halftime. It's not the Super Bowl, but something else. I don't think it's the Super Bowl, but they sponsor a halftime show and they use it to raise money to take care of folks. And whoever this British entertainer was basically came out and said, I'm not going to perform unless they, the uh, Salvation Army makes some big donation to LGBT causes. Well, the Salvation Army basically came out and said, you don't realize what we do, apparently. And starts rattling off all the things that they do. And it doesn't matter if you're gay or... We don't, we don't use that as a measuring stick for any of this stuff. And so somehow they came to an agreement. But basically, and I'm not saying one way or the other if I support or don't support the Salvation Army, but it's, it's interesting how immediately because it was Christian related, because it was the Salvation Army, immediately she assumed that they hate all gay people. And therefore she must force them now to publicly declare we not only don't hate them, but we now support them. We give money to their causes. When that kind of stuff happens and we call out to God, we should probably make sure <laughs> that we're in the right standing with Him too. And oftentimes I think I, I see Christians lash out, sometimes using the same tactics. And that's not appropriate either. David said he had committed himself to the Lord's ways. So James says that it's the prayers of a righteous man that get answered. In Psalm chapter 34, 15, David said, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. So we see a number of things there. We just see that the Lord hears the prayers of the righteous, but we also see that that means that we ourselves should be committed to righteousness if we expect the Lord to hear and answer us. So the lesson for us, I think when we pray, we might ask ourselves, is there anything straining my relationship with the Lord right now? If I am accused of something, or if I'm going through a difficult time and I call out for the Lord for vindication, can I stand before him much like David with the confidence that David had? Because I'm able to say, Lord, you've tested me. You know me. As you look at my life right now, there's nothing that I'm aware of that you could hold against me. Because you know me. It's hard to go to the Lord and ask for his help if you're unwilling to do that. If you're unwilling to say, Lord, you know me. You've looked into me. You can't hide it from him anyway. He sees it, right? When David called upon the Lord, he was confident that the Lord would answer him because he wasn't aware of anything hindering that relationship. Remember his words from verses 2 through 5 in the psalm. I'll read them again here. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me. And you find nothing. I have purposed and my mouth will not transgress. When was the last time you examined yourself? When was the last time you kind of looked at the Lord and said, Lord, you've tried my heart. You know me. You visited me by night. You've tested me and you will not find anything. Now again, that's not an arrogant statement by David. He's just referring to, I'm not aware of anything that currently runs contrary to you. That's where our confidence comes from. Now obviously it starts with our relationship with Christ because it's hard to say these things if you don't have a relationship with Christ. And so that's where we find the gospel. 
ultimately we wear and will wear the righteousness of Christ, but that doesn't mean we always behave that way. And so part of this psalm is, again, as we look at it, David's confidence that the Lord will vindicate him comes because he's in the right relationship with the Lord. And he's able to say, you've examined me, you know me. And there's nothing that the Lord will find. And that's our challenge to us. And ultimately, that's also where our hope comes from, is that the Lord will vindicate us. David didn't place his vindication in his own hands. He didn't seek vengeance himself. In fact, that's one of the neat things as we get into Second Samuel is David's response when he's told that um, his enemies are now dead. Well, one enemy, Saul. And then he honors Saul. Which is strange, because he ought to be rejoicing his enemy is dead, right? But he doesn't. Because he recognizes the, that Saul was the Lord's anointed for a period of time. So I'm going to go ahead and just close with that, that really this is a great psalm to encourage us, not just to rely completely on the Lord for our vindication when attacked or persecuted, but also to make sure that we're in that right relationship with Him. Because that's the only way we can be assured that the Lord will answer us in that particular circumstance. Amen? All right, Father, thank you so much for David's words to us this morning. We have been sheltered in many respects. We have been protected from much of the persecution faced by our brothers and sisters in Christ. David was a man who faced it often, at least in the early parts of his time as king, time prior to being king as well, and which is partly why many of his psalms come from this particular place, calling out or crying to you to protect him or to deal with his enemies. And while... We have been somewhat sheltered and protected here, Father. We find ourselves growing um, more and more accustomed to the attacks of the world around us, finding the Christian values and ideals that this country was founded on being despised um, by being challenged by the unsaved. But even in our own personal lives, Father, we find times where we're being accused of other things, things that are not fair or things that are not right in those interpersonal relationships. And David's words apply to that as well. We should pray that our behavior aligns with your word. David says that he was committed to the things that came out of your lips. And because of that, he was able to stand before you with assurance and ask for your vindication. So I pray that you might help us do that. Help us in our interpersonal relationships. Help us in our relationships with the world around us. Help us... um, to live in alignment with the principles that you've laid out for us. Help us to live in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul says in Ephesians, to not give the world or others cause to point a finger at us. Because when they do, we are able to then stand before you and say, Lord, you know me. You've seen my heart. You've tested and tried me. You know that I'm committed to walk the way that you want me to walk. But you also know my enemies. Father, it's there that we find our confidence. We find our confidence in your faithfulness, in your goodness to your people, and we thank you for that. 